We turn now to the Gospel of John, of which we will be looking at chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. As we are continuing in the aspects of looking into our Lord's and Savior's earthly ministry, and at its beginnings. Once again, that is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. It reads, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. Now, I want to stop here because some of you may have a translation that may have omitted verse 4. But verse 4 reads, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And thus it continues by verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. By verse 6, when, he, when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had, been, he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But I am but while I am coming, another steps down before me, and Jesus said to him, Well then get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And by verse nine, immediately the men came became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath day on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible that you carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had flipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And by verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us, Lord, in much in being. The Sabbath day, we give honor and glory to your Son. Of which, coming to this particular portion in the gospel, Lord, we still see the mercy that he has in regards to those by their own frailties, not able to see or sustain or even make out what the glory showed and was present in front of them. To those who were in the Old Testament to be held that day to see him face to face, to those who came to see him and not have it revealed, but in his wise and holy counsel, it was shunned so that churches then now, in the future, we'll see such a loving and merciful God, of which, when he came unto this earth and took on the form of man, he also understand our frailties. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. 
Now, you may be wondering as to why certain translations would not include verse number four. I will get to that. Um, I think sometimes people uh, never think about, you know, why they do certain things in regards to, you know, putting numerical verses to scripture. It was to assist us in actually memorizing and be able to historically, from a, even from a student standpoint, you know, point to particular proposition in scriptures for assistance. But nonetheless, you know, as time are revealed and more and more documents become and they are unwrapped and they become discovered, many people feel that certain things are not showing a consistency. But I would definitely say after taking on our sermon today, you can definitely see why or I'll try to make a point as to why. Verse number four would be important. Albeit, as we are now coming into chapter five, and John the Apostle is moved by the Spirit to write the following. We're seeing a track record as to which John is doing with the chapters. Let me bring your attention. As you would note, we had the prologue, a lot of doctrine, much good amount of time was spent on there. But as we got to the narratives, you will note that he will give you location, setting, and characters to keep note of. He does no different here. Now, why is that relevant? Only because, again, if we're coming to this chapter, like any other chapters, and you're reading this, are you, can you say with confidence you understand what is a sheep gate? What was this pool that resided in uh, Bethsaida. What are porticos? I think sometimes people come in and they just overlook small details. These details are not small. So let's survey this a little bit closer, shall we? By verse number one, the apostle notes that he states after these things, he's dealing to you in understanding that in chapter four, the Messiah went through a periodic of work of which after making his venue from going to and fro, he stops in two particular places, Samaria, and as he makes his return back to Galilee. And there he does not come empty-handed. He establishes what he purposed. For in chapter four of John, by verses 39 to 42, we see that many of the Samaritans believed in his name. And then by verses 50 through 53, we see the healing of the Satyrian son. And of which it's pretty prevalent. Upon the, the work that the Messiah does, not just the Centurion believed, but him and his household. Is it because the centurion who just had the individual discussion with the Messiah, was it by some sort of quote-unquote magic trick as the humanists like to convey with the works of the Messiah at which he believed? No. 
And this is what's going to be the running theme we're going to touch on now, almost going forward until we get to the hyper, I'm sorry, the high priestly prayer. Because now our focus is going to be intended to more and more upon those who he's coming in contact with, the measure of their faith, and those who witness the miracles, the lack thereof of their own conversion. Very simply put, I think, is really putting into perspective why it is so impressive, why it actually is a work of the Spirit that you would believe what God says. Some people don't. And what's interesting is to the measure of our, of our own belief, sometimes we even take what God says for granted. We will continue here. So, as the apostle is continuing in John chapter 5, he's making a point of note that our Lord is now compelled to return back to Jerusalem. Why is it a return? Because in the later portion of John chapter 2, he arrived at the time of Passover to Jerusalem according to his own holy and wise counsel. And when he was there last, given that the Passover of the Jews was near, we can see, especially how Pastor Jason had put into consideration the zeal that the Messiah had for his father's house. Psalm 69, 9, for the zeal for your house has consumed me and the taunt of those who taunt you have fallen on me. So given after 400 years spanning, the practices of which the temple was previously attributed to was now corrupted. So our Lord responded in kind. Now, during this initial embarkment in Jerusalem, to which we see by verses 23 to 25 of John 2. It states there again, many believed in his name and they observed the signs that he was doing. And I want you to note the works by the particular clause. Many believed in his name as they observed his signs. You note here again, those who were there in that time period I be it seen as Jesus performing and does the miracles. Those who saw the work at hand note that this gentleman is someone different. But to those who thought it was some sort of quote unquote magic trick, to which the Jews even conspire and says, by what authority do you come here and ruin and interrupt our terms of business? It attests well. It attests very well. Just as the Lord is going to make notion to those going forward in the remaining chapters. You don't believe me and you don't understand the words because you were never mine. <laughs> In fact, it is so interesting, given our own day and age, that the humanists will so cleverly try to denote, given that they have lack of evidence 
or their screwed up conscience will try to attest to what we as Christians will believe. Even the Lord simply put it in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. For it was noted as Abraham is speaking to the young rich man or the rich man nonetheless who is suffering in the next life. He tries to seek if there could be an olive branch his own brothers to cleave and believe. To cleave and believe. Not to come and suffer what he was going to suffer. Abraham responded properly. If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they would not be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. This is very telling. Why? Paul's going to add some more clarity, if I have not been clear so far. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because you need to spiritually discern. But then... Go ahead back to answering the question then. Who then believed as the Messiah was going through the works? Who then believed as the Samaritan woman came and gathered up a crowd amongst the Messiah to hear him preach? Who then believed as the Satyrian's son was healed? And the slaves came to him and he remarked by question and answer, when did the healing take place? Who then believed? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 2.15, the one who spiritually discerns all things. The one who's had their hearts changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36.26. These are the individuals. Who believed? This is a very important concept to understand here. Natural man cannot discern the things of God. So for the Jews to be in their ill-guided minds to even conceptualize that they were holy people and yet not observe the things that were in front of them, this is going to be apparent again and again and again and again, as we move forward through the Gospel of John. It just so happens, this is our first iteration. So, as we continue with your attention back to John 5 and verse 1, John the Apostle makes a notion of the Feast of the Jews. Why? For after the Passover, a celebration was to take place of some sort. Historically, this could be understood as the time of Pentecost. Now, I understand. The first time you're given some quote-unquote opening or seeing the word Pentecost, you see it in Acts 2. That's fair. Completely get that. Also, you don't see the word Trinity in the scriptures, yet we understand it is in there. So, by notion, the word Pentecost, you will not see it in, as used as an adage in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, the celebration of feasts was something to denote, almost to that particular notion. Now, I want to just add this as a side note. If you do, quote unquote, research in our time and age of the word Pentecost, 
you will see a connection to that feast, especially for the Hebrews going back into history. But that's not a point that I want to belabor on. I want to belabor on the sheer fact that of this particular feast of the quote-unquote Jews, there was certain proclamations, declaratives, expectations that were meant for them to operate in. Now, if you have your Bibles, it is in Numbers 28, and it's particularly in verses 16 through 31, but I want to read to you verse 16 and 17 just to bring a little bit more of this into context. By verse 16 in Numbers chapter 28, the Lord's Passover, as it stated, should be on the 14th day of the first month. And then by verse 17, on the 15th day of this month, there shall be a feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. Now, like I said, I do not have time. And for the sake of time, I will not be able to read the remaining portions of which are broken down in Numbers 28, but of which this allows us to kind of set a setting. Here we're putting into context, because you got to recall and understand, this was written to people in John's church of their time. They're fully familiar with this feast. We, unless you're a trained minister, are not. So these details are kind of important for us to kind of segue this, especially even though you would note how the pastors after me will give you more of a doctrinal process and mindset towards this. If you look back to where we started in a lot of our beginning chapters where the settings are set, this should even put into more clarity about where they're heading towards. So that way you're actually able to piecemeal and see, ah, I can set the setting. Ah, I see how there is harmony and I can see the flow and I can see what John is trying to exclaim. So, if we have the Feast of the Jews, we see in Numbers 28 that the Lord makes very clear as to what is to transpire and to take place. I bring your attention now then to John chapter 4. And I bring your attention to verse 34. In here, Jesus had said to them, and I'll, I'll reiterate here, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As it continues in verse 35, do not say there, do you not say that there are still four months, then comes the harvest? For behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields that they are white for harvest. Now, this is not some sort of slip of the tongue that our Lord and Savior makes in regard to these statements. And it is very expected that John, the apostle, being moved by the Spirit, is to include this. It is with particular intent, being that the harvest of which the apostles tried to make, and seeing that this was the time and season, the Lord makes it very clear, I am now coming to collect what my Father has given me. In fact, it is just so interesting because making this particular note, and if you Dave and date back to Numbers 28 
especially I believe in verses 18 to 31, you will note how the Lord in being and speaking through Moses, being moved by the Spirit, makes notions of particular harvests and notions of particular sacrifices that were to be done. If I segue you back now to John 5, the setting is now coming into focus. For by verse number 2, we see that there was a sheep gate, which there also relied a pool. And in Hebrew, they called it Bethsaida. Now, the five porticos that are being explained here is by a sense of an imagery and a sense of measurement. Why do I say that? Because, again, we don't say porticos, especially being in the West, in our native tongue. So what does this transpire to look like? Well, in the West, we know what the United States Capitol building looks like. So all the columns that you know on the front foyers, those are porticos. Now, if you are out in the East, and the only reason why I bring up our Eastern brethren is because we have those watching in the telecast, but for those outside the States, we also note that the porticos were something of a normal construction and architecture in Italy. So if you were to think about, for example, uh, the Palazzo dei Principal in Italy, or believe it or not, even in Africa, we have the Palacio dei Provo in Cabo Verde. This uh, kind of architecture use a lot of porticos or columns, especially in the front foyer of the building. Now, with the expanse of five, it is just a use of measurement in regards to what surrounded the pool in terms of keeping up the roof. So it's almost as if you were to come to this particular structure, five columns were to surround this pool of water of which people come to pay homage and or worship. See, such details should be important, especially as you like to fancy your imagery in regards to what the setting the apostle is trying to make. And he continues on, for he states by verse number three, the porticos lay a multitude to those who were sick, blind, limping, and or paralyzed. They were there to receive something. And for some interesting or strange reason, an adage was made in particular about that particular environment in regards to some sort of healing. Now, everyone here in one point or another, now granted, some must may be more in an advantage, but everyone here is in of good health. I do not think anyone here can imagine, even though we had someone recently had to walk with a cane and an assistance, nonetheless. But everyone here is in good health and nonetheless may not understand what pain and or to be paralyzed may feel like. So imagine these individuals are coming to this particular pool to receive healing. You're given an adage, hey, this pool may be able to end your suffering. I can tell you, or I can even bet, for those especially who may not have much, if you are suffering on this day, 
you may give up your entire livelihood just to end it. So the setting here is proper and set. And the apostle makes it very clear. The individuals who habitated near this pool. If it's anything, especially that the pool was near the sheep gate. The people being there wondered what would it take to end their suffering. The sheep gate and its relevance in particular is a note of sacrifice. Now, some of your translations might note it as a market. Others note it as a gate. But nonetheless, historically, here it was to which established one, the entry, so the northern entry that allowed you to come into Jerusalem from the north, but then also a lot of areas in the surrounding inhabitations around that gate inhabited animals that are being prepared for sacrifice. That is actually a pretty interesting note because with worship, especially in that day and age, a lot of sacrifices had to be done to atone for the sins of Israel. So it's interesting. At some point in caveat, that those who were there to quote-unquote worship near the pool, it resided near the sheep gate or sheep market, depending on your translation. In fact, I can even tell you right now, going back again to Numbers 28, 19, it even states where the scripture makes a point of emphasis in regards to the sheep gate, such of which when an offering was presented by fire, it was told two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs are one day old, and it should have no defect. <laughs> oh, the apostle leaving us plenty with details. So the setting is set, and I've given you the measurements. I've given you the quote-unquote characters. I've given you the location. Uh, if that is all in play, and that is all by based on your imagination or fancy or however you like to see it. Then when we transpire into the conversation with the Messiah and the lame man, we should take into effect his reasoning for being there. And the reason why I portion my statement by saying that is because... We're coming now to that point of contention for some strange reason for the inclusion or the omission of verse number four. For those who would like to live on the side of the omission, they saw it that, hey, we have the scripture that dates back even so much that we can date based on our data that this is the closest we have to the original manuscripts and we do not see this scripture included and others that we see that's a little bit more towards more of the future we did note that the scripture we seen by verse number four is a side note do we include it do we not 
My question to them would be, is one salvation dubious based on its inclusion? Believe it or not, I'll tell you no. Your salvation would not be dubious if it had been omitted. But then the fact that it has an argument for being necessary tells us just how much and how much clarity we're going to have between the gentleman making his statement to the Messiah and how he goes about forward. Verse number four states, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred it up. So again, I told you once, I told you twice, I'm going to tell you a third time. The individuals who habitated near that pool sought something. They didn't go there for no reason. And it should be of reference. If the apostle is going to include or make a note of something, it must have reason. There must be clarity. It can't not just be there to be there. And by which, note how the verse even continues. Who then so ever, after the first, after the stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease which he was afflicted. Again, they sought healing. They must have traveled miles. It must have took days to get to this vicinity to achieve an ultimate goal. No more suffering. Well, the discussion now between the Messiah and the layman is now going to come into view. For note, by verse number five, at which he was ill for 38 years he suffered for 38 years the lord by verse number six sees him and has compassion for his states based on what the apostle showed that he had already knew of his condition for he had been a long time in so what does our lord say in compassion do you wish to be well? But what does the sick man answer back? He doesn't actually say yes. He doesn't actually say no. He goes back to the only adage he knows for why he is there. Note what he says. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. I ventured. I sought assistance. And I can't end my suffering. I hear this adage. What adage have you heard? By verse number four, for an angel of the Lord would come down at certain seasons into the pool and stir up the water. Whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease he was afflicted. Now I broach to you this. If verse four was omitted, 
would the reader understood what the reason for the layman to be there? Now, I know you can't answer me because it's by retort, but nonetheless, as you can see here, the expectation of its inclusion should be apparent. You can't understand this now or into the future without details being clarified. This is not so much to say that the apostle was belaboring points. It's so that you have understanding. He is moved by the spirit with intent to write what he's intending to write. It is our fault that we don't understand, not his. So in looking at what the gentleman states to the Messiah, he does not say yes after the Lord says, uh, do you wish to get well? Yet he does not say no. All he knows is if that water stirs up, please help me and put me into this pool. But oh, our Lord and Savior does one more better than this man would have ever imagined. For by just saying the words, get up, pick up your pallet and walk Immediately, the man became well. And he does and obeys what the Messiah said. He got up, picked up his pallet, and he began to walk. Hmm. Amazing. For what the man thought and sought based on the scripture because like i said verse four kind of gives a little more clarity onto what verses seven eight and nine will provide it shows truly and truly well we in our own selves we in our own selves have a tendency to limit god Calvin states here, but the manner of curing, which here it is described, shows plainly enough that nothing is more unreasonable than that man should subject the works of God to their own judgment. For they pray what assistance or relief could be expected from troubled water. But in this manner, by depriving us of our own senses, the Lord accustoms us to the obedience of faith. It is because we too eagerly, we too eagerly follow what pleases our own reasoning. Doing what's contrary to the word of God. But on the contrary, we are therefore in order to render us more obedient to him. He often presents to us those things which contradicts our reasoning. The Lord did not help this man and put him into the pool because nothing was in the elements. What he did was he stated a statement. The man did what was stated as the Messiah deemed it to be. That is what makes us different from the humanists that we come to every single day. We obey our master. They don't. 
it's amazing to see that at the adage that the man has stated in regards to understanding about the pole being stirred up, that an angel of the Lord will come in a particular season. It is the one who is higher than the angel who comes in and heals the man. Hebrews 1, 3, verse 4 states, speaking of the Messiah, and he, being Christ, is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. For he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, for by verse 4, having become so much better than the angels. To the extent he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What the man wanted, and as we are accustomed to, even to the point where we deceive our own minds, we limit God. For by what condition that Jesus seeing him laying there and by posing the question, the man just sought the assistance in one small thing. Calvin even continues here to note and, and exclaim by our own faults, he states, quote unquote, by our own common fault to ascribe to creatures what should belong to God alone. It will be the height of folly to seek in trouble waters healing the cause of the cure. So therefore, being that he's speaking of Christ, he holds out the outward symbol in such a manner that he no longer has him looking at the symbol, but at to him. For Christ, as he raises their eyes to him, is alone the author of grace. Now, we're not done here. Because remember, the change of a man's heart from a stone to a heart of flesh does not stop. But we're privy to seeing just how far man's depravity can go. Here, we know, the apostle makes very clear, it's the Sabbath day. By verse number 10, as we turn back to John chapter 5, the Jews then seeing the man who has been lame for 38 years. They're not curious to know and celebrate he's alive and can walk. They want to know the fact that it's the Sabbath day and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, the man must be dumbfounded. He suffered for 38 years. These people walked since they were the time they were born. And he, seeing that he's able to move amongst them, they're worried about him carrying a pallet. They don't celebrate the fact that he has now had a renewed sense of life. So, fear for his life, and truly he is in fear for his life. You can know how he answers. He states, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. 
I'm walking here. I'm excited. He's the one who's made me well. He's the one who told me to pick up my palate and walk. So do you think they answer back in kind and remorse? No. They then further by verse number 12, they ask, who is the man who said to you, pick up your palate and walk? So more concerned about their skewed view of piety. They don't celebrate a man who suffered no more. So by verse number 13, the man who was healed did not know who it was because of what happens. The Messiah and his wise and holy counsel slips back and removes himself for he knew the crowd was growing. Now, for those who are in the audience and those listening to the catechist, as the apostles added this adage that now it was the Sabbath on that day, it should be a tell to the people that something was afoot. Because yes, the custom was properly observed. The Jews seeing the man with his palate nonetheless understood what the law states. What law? We understand the fourth commandment, but let's put it into more context. In Jeremiah 17, 21, it states, This is what the Lord says. Take care for yourself and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. So, it seems to us, or seems to so far, the Jews may have it aright. So then, one may also be thinking, Aha! The Lord Jesus has abrogated the Sabbath day. Nope. 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 For he stated, heaven and earth will pass away before my words will become fault. Matthew 24, 35. Luke 21:33. So then, what are we to say here? For could it be very apparent that this man was a well-known individual who habitated near the porticos? as he waited to bathe in the pool. Now, in coming to no more suffering, he's come to the Jews, who's now become judge, jury, and executioner. And when he sought to show his healer, the Messiah slipped away. Did not the Messiah want a crowd? I mean, when he was last in Jerusalem, he performed signs, right? In John chapter 2, he performed signs and wonders to the point that many believed in his name. You see, also in John chapter 2, the Messiah in his white and holy castle knew what was in mankind. And what's interesting is by verse 25, he did not need them to testify. You see, these Jews coming to the man saying that we know the law. You are violating the law. But our Lord 
knowing how to properly apply the law, slips away until he needed to reveal himself again, which is why by verse number 14, Jesus then finds the man who probably slipped away from the crowd just a moment to go and see if he can find the one who has saved him. Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. It is in short, I did not carry you into the pool of some sort you sought your cure. For I have made you whole by the power of my own word. But does the man serve some sort of adoration or does he prostrate in front of the, of the Messiah? For surely after being lame for 38 years, you would think he would have some sort of remorse. You see, this is interesting because it's a proper perspective on a certain thing we seem to not think about ourselves. And I even brought it to you in, in the conceived portion that we limit God, but I think Calvin even states it even better, especially with this particular adage that the Messiah is giving here. Calvin states, and I quote, this passage contains a highly useful doctrine. For when the Christ says, behold, you have become well, his meaning is that we make an improper use of the gifts of God. For if we are not excited in gratitude to him, well then, what are we are to make? Christ does not reproach the man with what he had given him, but only reminds them that he had been cured in that order, remembering the favor which he had received, that all his life from this point forward, he will serve God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his life. He would know that God is his deliverer. And understanding Christ and Christ himself, that he knows in mankind, he spurs the man to repentance. For he states, do not sin anymore. And for like a father to a child who needs correction, he states here the same so that nothing worse would happen to you. So, unlike the Jews who admonished the man at which he came and picked up his pallet and walked, the Messiah stated to him, now that you become well, sin no more. Repent and consider what has been done for you this day. So then, my time is done and right on the mark. Because now from verses 15 going towards the end of the chapter, as the man is going to make and reveal the man who told him to pick up his palate and walk, you're going to see the difference in the dynamic in which the Messiah shows grace. Now, albeit, he needs to show 
first and foremost to the Jews, especially in Jerusalem of the particular, he wants to show them, I am no small individual. And in fact, to go even a step further, I hold proper identity with God the Father. And when he does show that, note the way the Jews respond. Because you see, it goes back to where I stated from the beginning in the whole sermon here. The difference between us and the Jews, but well, the difference between us and the humanists is that when God says something, we believe him. Unlike the humanists, they do not, will not, and cannot. Shall we now let to the Lord our God in prayer? 